can't penetrate. Starks picks him up. And here is a boom, baby! Hey! I am speechless. I, I, I'm not. As the Indiana Pacers ready to celebrate their 1990s decade on February 11th when they host the Milwaukee Bucks, we bring on now the voice of the Indiana Pacers for 29 years and certainly throughout the entire 90s decade. Mark Boyle is with us. Let's go. You joined in 88-89, so right as you're starting is when we're getting into this decade. Reggie Miller is new. Rick Smits is new. There wasn't a whole lot of success leading up to the 90s. I guess my first question is, though, you get Reggie Miller. He starts having a year, for example, in his uh, third season where he has 25 a game. The team isn't yet seeing a lot of success, but as you enter the 90s, is there a general optimism that positivity is around the corner? Well, I think in retrospect it's easy to say that, but the reality is that they started making the playoffs in 89-90. And in 90, 91, 92, and 93, that's a four-year run. And it's one and out every year. And it's right around 500 every year. So there's a sense of sameness, a sense of mediocrity. There was uh, optimism about some of the individual talent. Reggie Miller had already established himself as a big-time shooter and a big-time scorer. And Rick Smith was promising. And there were other good players here, but they just couldn't really make any progress. So I think to say that everyone was optimistic or sensed something special happening would be revisionist history, because I recall at the time, Pat, thinking this is a decent competitive team, but it's just not getting any better. It wasn't getting any better. You mentioned the four straight playoff appearances all around 500 one and dones. So they bring in Larry Brown, a fairly high profile hire. What do you remember about that decision and, and kind of the aura around the team when that decision was made? That was a critical juncture in, a juncture in the history of the team because there were rumors flying that Donnie Walsh was in trouble. I don't know how real they were, but they were out there. Bob Hill had been the coach and did a decent job. And Larry was a controversial hire because his reputation, even back then, was he'll stay for five minutes and then go to the next place. Well, he comes, and he was very good. But even that first year, uh, about the midway point of the season, they were 16-23. and 23. You could see they were getting incrementally better, especially on the defensive end. When Bob Hill was the coach, it was all about outscoring the other team. Larry brought in a different perspective, and he emphasized defense more than offense. And they made some moves uh, over the course of Larry's tenure here, bringing in guys like Derek McKee, who were defensive-oriented guys, uh, bringing in veteran guys who had won, like Byron Scott. Uh, but even then, they're 16-23, and 23, and then they finished the season on a great run. And that was the first year they advanced beyond the first round of the playoffs. So it was a major breakthrough his first year here. Did that feel, that, that first playoff series against Orlando, did that feel sort of like a monkey-off-the-back moment for a franchise? It seemed like it. To me, because as I said, they either didn't make the play. They got into the NBA. They'd never won a playoff series. They got into the NBA in the, in the late 70s, and they either didn't make the playoffs or were one and done every single year until 93, 94. So when they finally won a series, and they were the lower-seeded team in that series, they won the first two games on the road in Orlando and then closed out in Indianapolis. It was best of three in the first round in those days. So had they lost the next round, I think there would have been a sense that they'd finally accomplished something and that the future was bright. You asked at the beginning of the conversation if there was optimism and people saw good things happening. I think that's when they finally saw it, when they won that first-round series against Orlando. 
they had played the Knicks previously. They took them to seven in that season, in that series. Was there any sense after that series, you'd played them a couple times in a row, yet to come out victorious, that you might look down the line and realize that the Knicks are going to be a large path in the way of Indiana for several years to come? You never know, but they were a good team, and they had some young talent there. This was 93-94, so Patrick Ewing wasn't young anymore, but he wasn't old either. He had to be probably uh, right in his early 30s at at that time, Uh, and they had guys like Charles Oakley and later on Anthony Mason. They were a rugged team that was very good, uh, and you knew they were going to be around for at least two or three years, which in the NBA really is an eternity. Uh, But you didn't know where you were going, and you didn't know what these other teams were doing. Atlanta was very good then. The Pacers took them out in the second round that year. So you had the sense that if you were going to advance, sooner or later you would have to take them out. And I remember getting to the conference finals that first year in 94. It surprised everybody. And that the Pacers went seven, I can speak personally and tell you it amazed me. I thought they would get dismissed pretty easily. And I remember having this conversation with Dick Harder, who was an assistant coach with the Knicks then, and later on was an assistant coach with the Pacers. And I specifically asked him, when you were with the Knicks playing the Pacers in 94, did you expect it to go seven? And he said, no, we thought we would sweep. We thought we were much better than Indiana. Uh, And it's not that we disrespected them, but we just thought they weren't good enough to compete with us. And the Pacers almost won that series, which set the stage for a nice little run of several years where it seemed like they met in the playoffs every year. The following year, the Pacers win 52. You think of the most recent run Indiana has had to the Eastern Conference Finals. You always knew you had to get through LeBron James at some point. In this scenario, Michael Jordan is away from basketball for a couple of years, so you don't have to go through him. Uh, you win 52 games, you're the two-seed. Going into the playoffs, is there a legitimate title hope, or are you not quite there yet? Well, you'd gotten to the conference finals and almost got to the NBA finals the year before. You were clearly one of the better teams during the regular season. 52 wins is a lot of wins. So I think they felt they were at least good enough to make a run at it. I didn't sense at the time that they thought they were the best team in the NBA or the teams would have to come through them or anything like that. But they were good, and they knew they were good. And they had the year previous where they had the nice little run and got some playoff experience. So I think probably the mindset going in was that we're pretty good. It'll be interesting to see what happens. I don't think even then, though, that there were championship expectations. I would say there were aspirations more than expectations at that time. Some of the most well-remembered plays in Pacer history are during this stretch. 8.9 seconds is certainly one of those. I've generally been asking broad questions, but I want you to try to go back to that moment when you're watching that unfold. What's going through your head as it looks like the paces are done and and Reggie's putting together a remarkable stretch, but it only happens in a couple of seconds? The game looked like it was lost, and if you go back and watch the video or read the play-by-play description of it, you'll see that there were a number of factors there that had any one of them not occurred, the whole thing wouldn't have occurred. John Starks missed two free throws. There was a critical foul that New York made off of a missed free throw that they didn't need to. They had squandered a timeout earlier in the game. They didn't have one when they needed it. And Anthony Mason on a baseline inbound in his backcourt threw it away. Reggie Miller pushed off Greg Anthony to intercept a pass. It was never called. And so if any one of those things doesn't happen, now it doesn't diminish what Reggie did. He still came up with some clutch shots. But when you think about it, the game 
even by NBA standards, when a lot can happen in the final seconds, appeared to be lost. Uh, and as I recall, I might be wrong about this, that was game one of that series, yeah. wasn't it? Mm -hmm. And it was in New York, and so it's magnified exponentially. And it was such a dagger for the Knicks. That game was won, and now all of a sudden it's lost. Now, they did come back and obviously make a series of it, but it's really hard to articulate it now because I think people remember the eight points in eight and nine, ten seconds, and that is the big-picture view. But so many little things happened within that time frame, any one of which, had it not happened, would have resulted in an entirely different scenario or an entirely different sequence of events. So all of those things putting, uh, put together is what I remember about the whole thing. Obviously, there was a lot of circumstance around the game, and it's a playoff game, so it was very important. Your job, very literally, is in the micro aspects of the game, literal play to play. So as this is unfolding and in the moments after it has happened, did you realize the enormity of what Miller had done, or had that not sunk in yet? For me, it hadn't. I knew it was impressive, and I knew that the Pacers had, to use the cliche, snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. But contextually or from a historical standpoint, it didn't dawn on me later the significance. I didn't even know it was eight points in eight and nine, ten seconds. I just knew it was a bunch of baskets in a short period of time that allowed the Pacers to win a game that almost certainly they should have lost. It wasn't until later when people put numbers to time. Uh, I knew he'd scored, uh, it, was it a couple of threes and a couple of free throws or mm -hmm. a couple of threes and a two? I can't even remember what it was now. I knew he'd made some plays, and I knew it was in a short period of time. But now, if you, if you even ask a casual NBA fan, hey, 8 points, 8.9 seconds, what is that? Everyone knows what that is. Right. But at the time, it didn't resonate that way with me. Later in that series, the Pacers overcome the Knicks for the first time. Ewing misses at the buzzer. Your call sounds like this. Harper to get it in. Throws it to Ewing. Ewing surrounded. Two seconds to shoot. He drives. He shoots. He missed. He missed. He missed. We win. Ring the bell, baby. Ding dong. The witch is dead. It's maybe a moment you're best known for, but you didn't really like your call. No, I hated it. And here's why. Almost everything I've done in my career, I don't just walk into an arena and wing it. I have notes and I have information. But as far as coming up with something at the end of a game, I never do that. I just like to play it out and try to come up with something spontaneously. I had been toying with that for a little while because for me – the Knicks had been a nemesis of the Pacers. They had beaten the Pacers two years in a row, once in the first round, once in the conference finals, and now uh, they were like a behemoth just standing in the Pacers' way. The Pacers couldn't get past them, and it looked like they were going to blow that game too. They had a very nice lead and almost let it get away. So for me, the parallel was Dorothy in Oz with that hideous woman in her black hat. And, and so... In the back of my mind, I had something about the Wicked Witch. And it was too contrived, and it sounded bad, and it was... I don't know if you can appreciate this if you're not in broadcasting, but for me, very rarely does this happen. As the words are leaving my mouth, I'm wishing I could pull them back in and come up with something better and spontaneous. And I was mortified, and I... And this is 1995, so it's not now where you're either praised or roasted on Twitter immediately. Right. But I, I feared that, oh, my goodness, I am really going to hear it this time because that is just awful, and I butchered it. 
And everyone loved it. And I, I'm grateful that they did because it saved me a lot of embarrassment, which I was sure was coming. To play devil's advocate, is there any of you that maybe thinks that that moment deserved more than spontaneity on the mind, that it was such a big moment that maybe it deserved some kind of reflection that you were putting in even before it happened? Well, you could make that case, but that's not how I operate. I don't, I, I don't do it that way. If I was the kind of guy that scripted out stuff, and I'm not denigrating those that do, uh, you hear people, especially people who are in position where they know something's coming. Uh, Milo Hamilton back in the day with Hank Aaron, 714th home run. You know it's coming. Mm -hmm. You've got a whole off season to figure out what you want to say. Uh, this was a little different than that. And there are a lot of guys that script out their final comments. Uh, Jim Nance, for example, is famous for doing it at the NCAA tournament. It works for them, and I'm not criticizing it, but I've never been that guy. And so I felt like I had stepped a little bit outside my own standards, if that's an appropriate word. And I just never liked it. Your, your question, though, is interesting because maybe it did deserve something. But even if it did, let's say it did, surely I could have come up with something better <laughs> than that. <laughs> Well, the follow-up then is it's been over 20 years since that moment, yet I've been with you when this has happened, so I assume it happens a lot. People still come up to you yeah. either with that quote yeah. or, or in some sort. How often does that happen? Not that often, uh, but often enough so that it doesn't surprise me when it does. It's not like when I go to the grocery store. All of the shoppers are converging on me and say, hey, I'm 95, I was a kid in 95. I, you know, no, it's not like that. But it happens with enough frequency that it never surprises me when it does happen. And I know it's not the nature of people to come up to your face and say, man, I really hated that, <laughs> or I hate you. So that's never happened to me. But I've often wondered, there must be people out there that think that stinks. And I, I, I often wonder how many there are. Fair enough. You move forward. There were you, you go down the line a couple of years, a couple of down years. Injury plays a factor into some of that. Larry Brown resigns, and Larry Bird is brought in. Also reinforcements, Jalen Rose, Chris Mullen, around that time are new additions. Did it feel like uh, a, a second wave of reinforcements were coming in to help a team that was still trying to get over the edge? Not at first, because they had declined in consecutive years. The year after that New York series we were just talking about, they lost in the first round to Atlanta. Part of that was that Reggie got hurt during mm -hmm. that series. And then the next year, they didn't make the playoffs at all. Part of that was because there had become a level of antipathy between the players and the coach. The players didn't like the coach. The coach wanted out. It was a dysfunctional situation. So the next year they come with some of the changes you've made, most notably a new coach. But most of the same people were still there. Reggie Miller was still there. Rick Smith was still there. Dale Davis was still there. All of those guys were still there. It was, with the exception of an addition or two, more or less the same group. And then they started, I think, two and five or two and six. And they started very slowly. So there was no feeling that anything special was happening. But then right after that, they started winning with great regularity. And... I think they wound up with 58 wins, and it was them in Chicago that year. Uh, that, to me, that 97-98 team, that first mm -hmm. bird team, I've been here since, as you mentioned earlier, Pat, 88-89. That, to me, is the best team the Pacers ever had. Now, they couldn't beat Jordan. They had Chicago down in Game 7 in Chicago and couldn't finish him. Uh, Mark Jackson was there. Reggie was there. Chris Mullen was there. Uh, Rick Smits and Dale Davis, they had a really, really good team. Jalen Rose, who Larry Brown had no use for, 
Larry Bird had great use for, and he blossomed under Bird. Uh, Chicago had Jordan, and they had Pippen, and they were a little bit too much, but I still think that was the best team the Pacers have had in my time. The year they go to the finals, they almost didn't get out of the first round. What do you remember about that series against Milwaukee? And you mentioned that you didn't really feel like in the early 90s that the Pacers felt ready to beat those Knicks teams or maybe mentally that they could beat them. Did you feel like Milwaukee was a team that could beat Indiana in that first round series? Not at first. They, that was a team that featured a young Ray Allen. Sam Cassell was there. They had a good team. But the Pacers had a really good team. And so you figured maybe Milwaukee would win a game and maybe provide some stern tests in other games. But until the fifth game, even in the fifth game, I never thought Milwaukee was going to win. That was a best of five still back in those days. And you have the fifth game at your place. You have the better team. But the Bucks had done a great job. They'd won two. And they had, they had that game, not one. That's, that's too strong. But they were in position. And what I remember about that last sequence is the Pacers were down and they missed a shot. Had Milwaukee gotten that rebound, then the Pacers would have been in trouble. But Dale Davis grabbed an offensive rebound, threw it into the corner. Travis Best hit a three. And the Pacers won that series in five games. It was not a good matchup for the Pacers. The Bucks were younger, a little bit more athletic, and they provided some problems for the Pacers. But in the end, the Pacers won that game. And that, as it turned out, was their toughest series of the whole run or at least the only one that went the full number of games, and then they got to the finals and lost to the Lakers in six. What about that run that went to the finals, the franchise's only appearance in the finals, was a breakthrough? Maybe some of that is the opponent is different than it was a couple of years back, but why in that year were they able to do something that they haven't previously or since? Hard to say because they, same, they came so close other times. Uh, they had gotten to the conference finals and lost in seven games to New York. The next year they got to the conference finals and lost in seven games to uh, Orlando. And then the two years they didn't make the playoffs, then Bird comes. They get to the conference finals and lose in seven to Chicago. They get to the conference finals and lose in six against an eight seed, which was New York. Uh, that was the infamous Jess Kersey four-point play series. Uh, and so they'd been close several times. Maybe it was the experience. Maybe it was just their time. Some people believe in that. Uh, maybe it was just that they had better matchups. There, there was no powerhouse waiting to knock them out in 2000 like there was with those Knicks teams. Orlando wasn't a powerhouse, but they were up and coming with Shaquille O'Neal and Anthony Hardaway. They had Nick Anderson. They had Dennis Scott. They had a good team. Uh, and there were always teams that weren't necessarily better, but the Knicks, the Knicks in 94 and 95, I thought, in 94 especially, were just a little saltier, just a little bit more evolved because it's a progression. Very rarely do you suddenly become good and now you're in the finals. It's a process, and it was for the Pacers too. And I can't answer that question by giving you any one factor as to why they suddenly got through in 2000 where they couldn't in any of those other years, uh, but they did get through. Uh, and they probably would have beaten the Lakers had they won game four in overtime. Uh, that was the first year of Bankers Life Fieldhouse. Right. Uh, but they lost in overtime after Shaquille O'Neal had fouled out in game four. Uh, then they slaughtered the Lakers in game five and were eliminated in, in game six, a game that, by the way, they had the lead in the fourth quarter in. Not asking you to rank every champion that you've seen, one through 28 and soon to be 29. The Lakers, though, they're on the start of that three-peat. Now – 
I don't know if you can put them up against Jordan's team, but in general, it seems like the Pacers get to the finals maybe uh, with the help of being just past Jordan's run, but they run into a little bit of a freight train of a team that is just starting their own dynasty in the Lakers. They just didn't have an answer for Shaquille O'Neal. He was in his prime then. And you'd have to go back and look at the box scores, but one of the reasons they changed the rules about fouling in the last two minutes is because Larry Bird knew that the Pacers' best chance was to keep fouling Shaquille O'Neal off the ball. And in one of those games, I don't remember the exact number, Pat, but in one of those games he shot over 20 free throws in a single quarter because they were just fouling him every time and there was no penalty other than he got to shoot two free throws, which he couldn't make. Uh, they changed the rule shortly thereafter, but he was too big and too strong, and Bryant was really just becoming a dominant force. And they would go on to win three, so they were very good. But it wasn't as though they were able to totally outclass the Pacers. The Pacers were good. Uh, they let that overtime game get away. They had the lead in game six. The Lakers were better. I'm not suggesting otherwise, but the Pacers were right there with them. Reggie Miller will have the bobblehead in the game against the Bucks. So many of those guys, though, are beloved even 20-plus years down the line. Rick Smiths, the Davis brothers, Rose, Mullen, Jackson down the line. And what's interesting is you look at a lot of those guys, and they're now still prominent figures, many of them in, in broadcasting. Jackson, of course, had a stint in coaching but has been a broadcaster. Jalen Rose, uh, Antonio Davis. Reggie, of course, Austin does some TV and, and, and works with you. Was, was there ever a point when you were looking at that team and thinking, you know, there's a lot of guys here who could have a future in the career in the field that I'm currently in? Not really. I, I don't think you tend to think of players that way when they're playing. Now, looking back on it, they were a, they were a chirpy bunch. If you'd go to a practice or sit on the bus – uh, it was nonstop chatter going on, so they weren't afraid to speak, which I guess is one of the traits that a good broadcaster would have. Uh, and, and they were a smart group, too. You mentioned Mark Jackson was a coach. Uh, they knew the game, and that doesn't mean you can articulate the game. Some of these guys are obviously better broadcasters than others, uh, but they've all had some degree of success. And then along those same lines, you had a lot of guys from that era who went on to be coaches. Uh, Sam Mitchell was there. LaSalle Thompson, who was an assistant coach with Charlotte and the Knicks, was there. Byron Scott's been a head coach several places. He was there. Uh, so they had guys that stayed involved in the game because of their intellect, their knowledge of the game, or their ability to articulate it, or their desire to be around it, or a combination of all three of those. But at the time, I never sat around and thought, boy, I bet Reggie would be a great broadcaster. Or I think Mark Jackson has a future. No, I didn't do that. I, I guess I don't tend to look at players that way. So those guys, did any of them ever come to you when they're thinking about making that transition into broadcasting? Hey, what do you think? Get any feedback? Reggie did. He asked me uh, to watch some of his games. He first did some WNBA games. Mm -hmm. Uh were they on Lifetime in those days? or I can't remember, but that's how he got started. That's how he got his foot in the door, and he asked me to look at a couple of his games and, and offer some feedback, and I did. Uh, and Austin has worked with me, and, and he approaches broadcasting the same way he approached playing. He wants to be good at it. He works at it, so he's always uh, asking for advice and counsel. Uh, but none of those other guys did, um, which doesn't surprise me. There's, there's, a, there's always a little bit of a disconnect between – those of us who aren't playing and those of them who are. It's not that they don't like us or get along with us, but they don't tend to ask us for advice on 
anything. But to be fair, I don't ask them for advice on anything either. <laughs> fair enough. To go back uh, track here a little bit, what sticks out the most about those that decade, I guess, of players off the court? I know that's very expansive, but but you're around the team constantly. You mentioned they were a chirpy bunch. I know you were close with Fred Hoiberg. There's a lot of guys who maybe weren't in the spotlight on some of those teams that maybe have interesting stories or were interesting guys off the court that you were privy to that many may, might not know. Are you asking for specific stories? Wherever you want to go. What, uh, uh, th some of those guys off the court, what were they like to be around when they weren't playing basketball? Well, I'll say this, and it expands beyond the 90s, before that and after that. I think there's a misperception sometimes, and I understand it because fans only see a certain aspect of a player. Let me give you an example, and it's a little off topic here, but it will help me make my point. When the Pacers had those teams with Jamal Tinsley and Steven Jackson uh, and guys that were getting in trouble off the court, the assumption would be, and I totally get it, oh, these are bad guys. Those guys were among my favorite guys. They were good guys who made bad, even stupid choices. And some of those choices are not to be excused, uh, but they were good guys. And I mentioned those guys because I've been here now for almost 30 years, and I can count the number of bad guys we've had come through here on one hand. Uh, the 90s group was a little different. Where I'm going with this is we had good guys here in the 80s when they were struggling and in the O's when they won 61 games and in the O's when they were getting in trouble, and now when we've had some success with the franchise and other years have struggled. That's been a constant here because there's a, there's a culture here that I, I can't speak to before I was here, but from my time here, it all goes back to the way Donnie Walsh wanted to run a franchise and the kind of people he wanted to bring in. So there's always been good guys here. They get involved in the community. They're fun to talk to. Uh, I enjoy being around them. But that group had a, had a longer lifespan. They were together a little bit longer. Reggie came in uh, 87 before I came, and he was still here in the O's. Uh, the Davises were here for a long time. Dale was here until he got traded for Jermaine O'Neal after the uh, final season. Antonio spent the majority of his career here. Mark Jackson was here and came back. Jalen had his best years here. And those guys were together for, by NBA standards, a pretty long period of time. So there was more of a comfort level. You know this, even having been here for as short a period as you have. There are new guys coming through here all the time, and sometimes there's a whole bunch of new guys, and just as you're starting to get to know them, then they're gone. With that group, it wasn't that way. There were new guys coming in, but the same core group of guys were always there. And so you got to know them a little bit, a little bit better. And I'll, I'll say this too, uh, as the times change with the internet and Twitter and the inundation of media, uh, players are a little more suspicious now than they were back in the 90s, and there's, uh, there's an opportunity to establish relationships there that didn't exist in the 90s. Plus, in the 90s, I wasn't that much older than the players. Now I'm sure they look at me and think I came down the mount with Moses. Not that <laughs> Moses would hang with me. Or is it Noah that came? Well, whoever. I'm not a biblical scholar, but you see where I'm going here. Uh, and so it was just different. It was more familial. And the, and the times were different, and I, I think they were conducive to having those kinds of relationships. Leads me nicely into my final question, which is about continuity. Donnie Walsh, of course, the architect, and Larry Bird coached the team that has had the most success in Pacers history. But you look at that group and really save Reggie Miller from the great teams in the O's, 
completely different team on the floor and, and certainly different when Paul George, David West, Roy Hibbert were leading the Pacers to success in the teens. But you've got Donnie Walsh still here and Larry Bird still here from those teams. Bird is president, Walsh as a consultant. Do you feel like that continuity is part of the reason that while players have come and gone, in general, this team has seen more ups than downs over the last 20, 30 years? No doubt, because uh, look at it, take it even a step further. The same owner the whole time, uh, and the owner trusts the basketball people to do their jobs. He doesn't meddle. He's interested. He gets involved. He asks questions. He never tells them what to do. lets them do their job. Donnie ran it for many, many years, and then he mentored Larry briefly while Larry learned the ropes, and now Larry's running it. So that's two guys running the place in 30 years, and their vision is the same from the standpoint of things change. You may want to play a different style. You may want to do this or that, but they want to bring in the same kinds of guys. They've tried to create a culture here, and with the exception of that period in the O's where things got sideways for a few years, almost without exception, the Pacers have been a franchise that whether they win or lose, they're always excellent representatives of the city, of the franchise. They get out into the community. They are really good with the media. Uh, and that's been the case forever. And it all starts at the top. Larry and Donnie run it. They bring in coaches who see the world the same way they do. Uh, I don't think a lot of people really understand this, but in my time here, coaches don't get fired. Frank Vogel was not fired, and neither was Larry Brown. Their contracts just expired, and they went elsewhere or were not invited back. And I know that's semantics to some, but the point I'm trying to make is they don't do things on a knee-jerk level. An eight-game losing streak does not put the coach in jeopardy. When was the last time you heard a rumor about a Pacer coach being fired in the middle of the season? Never, because that's not how they do things here. So they're trying to create a, an environment and an atmosphere and a culture, and it's really served them well. I think if you were to go around, as we do, traveling, go around the NBA, uh, you get a sense of how other franchises do things. This franchise is, is one of the most admired in the entire NBA, and it, 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 it's too simplistic to say it comes down to this, but a big part of it is the same owners the whole time who have a vision, and they hire guys to run it. Only two. Two. Donnie came, I think, in 86, maybe? So you're talking about two guys in 31 years. That's unheard of. And the continuity and the vision is the same, and they create a culture here, and by and large, it served them very well. The Pacers will be celebrating the 90s decade on February 11th. They host the Milwaukee Bucks. Pacers.com slash tickets is how you can be there. There are a few tickets still available, so make sure to act uh, if you would like to be in a field house for that one. A free Reggie Miller bobblehead comes with every ticket. If you can't, the Kroger pregame show will begin on the radio at 6.30. You will hear Mark Boyle there, but play-by-play uh, -play voice of 29 years. Mark Boyle, appreciate your insights. Thank you. Always a pleasure.